This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to FinTech Recap, the first FinTech Recap of 2024. Very exciting. My name is Alex Johnson, and joining me as always is my friend and fellow thinker of FinTech thoughts, Jason Mikula. Jason, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I celebrated actually in the U.S., which was fantastic because I got to do some uh, feet on the ground market research. People seemed very bothered by my suggestion that fintech employees don't typically shop at Walmart. Alex, do you shop at Walmart? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, I do every once in a while just because where I live, there is just a set of things that are kind of tricky to get. Like It's like one of those things where it's like, I can either wait to order it online, or if I need it right now, there's kind of a limited number of places that have such a thing, and Walmart is one. So I would say probably once every nine-ish months, and it's always an illuminating experience. What did you find in your Walmart sojourn? Yeah, well, I mean, one, I mean, to your point, just like logistically where we were staying with my partner's family, you know, I grew up as a Target family. Me too. Um, Me too. But, <laughs> I will say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, the Target was like 20 or 30 minutes away and the Walmart was like five minutes away. So I, I was particularly curious to see the placement for one, which is the yeah. joint venture between Walmart and Ribbit to sort of operate a neobank and earned wage access product. Really interested mm-hmm. to see how that was placed within the store, which I have to say was like not particularly anything fancy, right? There was kind of a cardboard thing over the security, whatever you call that device that you walk through that had advertisement on it. And then a very sort of like sad and dilapidated set of cards on a J hook in like the customer service center or financial service center next to Walmart money card, which I have to imagine your typical consumer looking at these two things is like, how are these different? Right. <laughs> because right. frankly, they're not particularly different. I mean, one is basically a, a white label of a green dot product, which I assume Walmart is still under contract with. And then the other is one. And then next to that, an ATM with an ad for the Capital One co-brand card on it. Aha. Uh-huh, aha. Uh-huh. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I wrote about Walmart in my newsletter recently because I was sort of speculating on like what's taking so long with one and sort of consolidating under this new vision. And because they they just announced uh, a firm just announced an expansion of their sort of buy now pay later arrangement with Walmart to extend into the self checkout area and yeah it's weird like they kind of still have a lot of different irons in the fire for fintech stuff despite the fact that I was sort of under the impression that one was kind of the consolidated master strategy for everything so I don't know maybe it takes longer than we think for such things to ripple through the massive Walmart ecosystem but yeah it's interesting. I saw your post about the firm and Walmart. I meant to use the self-checkout to see if that was there, but I did not have a chance. So I guess I have to go back to the U.S. so I can self-checkout at Walmart and apply for a firm. Yeah, well, I mean, you have an expansive fintech market research travel budget, as I understand. So, you know, I mean, it should be no problem for you to just hop the pond, come over to, to Walmart, maybe go to Bentonville and like really experience like Walmart and like the white hot center of Walmart. 
I have to get that uh, approved for back half of 2024. I'll talk to my boss. <laughs> okay, yeah, I know that you have a boss yeah. like we all do. So um, with that, uh, let's jump into some yeah. fintech stories outside of Walmart. The first one that I wanted to talk about is one I, I haven't really spent too much time digging into, so I thought it'd be a good excuse for the podcast, but it's sort of a rising trend of reimbursements within the world of P2P payments and faster payments. So couple... Uh, parts to this news story. The first is that the UK's payment systems regulator has confirmed plans that they've been talking about for a while to improve protections for victims of authorized push payments fraud, which is a very, very common type of fraud within the UK payment system, which will come into force in October of 2024, which is this year. I am still not quite used to that, but I guess October of this year is when it will come into effect. It's being described as kind of a step change in fraud protection, which essentially will mean that the vast majority of money that's lost in this APP fraud, which again is very, very common, will actually be reimbursed. And that you know consumers and other eligible groups for reimbursement will have a, I think, a lifetime maximum reimbursement of up to 415,000 pounds to get reimbursed. So um, they're putting a lot more liability on the financial institutions. And what's interesting is that essentially it's kind of the same as it is in the US with Zelle or any of these other types of payment scams. If you are tricked into authorizing a payment that was sort of a trick conducted by a a fraudster or a scammer, you can essentially report that and request reimbursement. And unless There's a very specific set of conditions where the payment service provider can push back if the customer has acted with gross negligence, uh, and the burden for showing gross negligence is on the payment service provider. If the customer has acted fraudulently, so if it's first-party fraud, and again, the PSP can prove that, or in the case of unlawful payments or civil disputes, those are areas where the payment service provider can push back. But unless it meets one of those requirements, the payment service provider is in fact required to reimburse the customer. And interestingly, for the first time, the payment service provider that facilitated the sending of the payment will be able to get 50% of the reimbursed amount from the payment company or financial institution that accepted or received the payment. So they're trying to split the pain evenly between the sender and receiver, which is um, quite a change from how things have typically worked. So That's happening in the UK. And at the same time, you might remember late last year, it was reported that Zelle and early warning services, which runs Zelle, had introduced a change for a very specific type of fraud within the Zelle ecosystem. So this is the, you know, sort of impersonation scam where you pretend to be a bank or a government agency or whatever, and you trick a customer into authorizing a payment, the banks that participate in Zelle are now actually reimbursing customers for these imposter scams as well. And somewhat similar to what they're doing in the UK, the mechanism that they're using to do this is not actually a reimbursement by the sending financial institution, but rather a clawing back of the money from the receiving institution. So the customer is made whole, but the money is actually clawed back by the sending institution to the institution that received it within the Zelle network. So all of these changes, whether they're introduced by regulation or in the US are being done sort of proactively by the financial institutions themselves, 
I guess, Jason, the thing that occurs to me about this is this all seems to be the result of just mounting public pressure around just sort of frustration with these scams, a lot of noise made by politicians and policymakers, and, you know, finally seeing some movement here. What's your sort of big takeaway from seeing this change as, you know, faster payments and P2P payments safe now? Is that the takeaway? These types of fraud and scams, you know, are not inherently new. I mean, the no. vector, right? So whether it's, you know, Cash App, Venmo, Zelle, like that method is sort of the novel piece here. And I think that sure. is opening up an avenue for both regulators and politicians to apply pressure, right? So as you were sort of like summarizing the new developments, I was kind of thinking like, okay, you know, what are some of the fundamental differences as a payment mechanism? You know, if you're doing an ACH debit or a card payment, typically, like that's making a payment to a merchant. Not that that couldn't potentially be a fraud or a scam, but then the protections set up by EFTA Reg E, you'll provide a fairly clear framework and liability for how to handle those things. Granted, I know that there is you know, a lot of hand-wringing lately over the card dispute process sort of not being fit for purpose. You know, it's slow, it's expensive, it's manual, it doesn't work, etc. But I mean, there are there's a framework for handling this. You know, in the sort of impersonation space, you know, and sadly, at multiple employers I've worked for, it's been a problem where the company I worked for was impersonated in one of a classic variant of these, the advanced payment loan scam, right? So somebody, potentially because they've applied through a lead generator site or, or their information is out there, get a phone call. Hey, I'm calling from you know, lending company X. You've been at good news. You've been approved for $3,000. I yeah. just need you to send me whatever, a $100 payment processing fee. Right. And typically that would be done by back in the day, having them get like a green dot money pack card and be like, oh, I just need you to read the code on the back to me. And then once they've done that, the money's gone. There's no way to trace it. Also the sort of whatever IRS impersonation scams. I mean, to me, the key difference here is, you know, the payment rail, the mechanism. And because it is, particularly in the case of Zelle, operated by a bank-owned consortium, which is always, you know, tends to be a favorite punching bag uh, these days. It's quite a bit easier for politicians and regulators to point at something like Zelle, which is not directly bank-owned, you know, de facto bank-owned, and say, you guys need to figure this out, versus, you know, some of these other, you know, problems that we've seen in the past, or or frankly, even with Venmo and Cash App, which are, again, sort of like bank-adjacent, uh, as far as where they can bring pressure to bear, it seems to be falling on Zelle and then perhaps Cash App and Venmo and other payment processors sort of feel the need to follow what's happening in the market, even if it's not a specific regulatory obligation. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I think, you I mean, you touched on a really interesting point, which is like, what's the use case and what's the rail, right? And so the use case, one of the big changes that we've seen in the last, you know, however many years has been going from consumer to merchant interaction, where yes, there is fraud, there are scams, but it's usually a smaller amount, right? Like a fraudster is not necessarily going to spend, I mean, maybe they will in the age of generative AI, but traditionally they weren't going to set up like a whole fake shop to just to convince like 
me, Alex Johnson, to buy something. Like it was a lot more work to set up these sort of fake scams when you were doing sort of a consumer to merchant interaction. And so I do think the the network rules, and by the way, I will say the rules that are coming out in the UK when I was reading about them reminded me a lot of just the card networks and their sort of dispute process where it's like, look, this is on you, the issuer. Here's your guidelines for how you can fight it and like the process you can go through to get your money back. But all of that onus is on you because we're going to make consumers feel safe transacting with these cards first and foremost. And so it, it seems like we're sort of headed in that same direction that the card networks have staked out for a while. But you know, part of it is the use case. So P2P is inherently kind of more dangerous and more sort of scam filled because you know, anyone can sort of pretend to be an authorized person on the other end of it. It can be, you know, I, the one that always kills me is the grandparent scam where, you know, grandparents get a call that their grandchild has ended up in jail and they need to bail them out. And hey, you know, before it was go down to Best Buy and get me these gift cards, which obviously is very suspicious. Now it's maybe slightly less suspicious because it's, you know, send me this money via Zelle. So I think the P2P has sort of opened up the use cases and the ability to kind of blend them into, you know, different fraudulent sort of scams. But the other element to it is the underlying rail and how fast the money moves. And I think that's what in the UK, obviously, with faster payments, which they've had for a while, they've been dealing with this authorized push payment fraud, which is, you know, particularly dangerous because the money is moving in real time. And in the US, absent, you know, ubiquitous real time payments, the only example that we've really had there is Zelle. And so I think that's the other way, in addition to banks being a good punching bag for politicians, I think the other thing that Zelle really opened themselves up to with this was they were the ones that leapt into real-time payments by default for P2P payments, whereas Venmo and Cash App and others, it felt instantaneous, but it actually wasn't. The money in a lot of cases was moving much more slowly via ACH. And so I think that as we sort of push more into this real-time payments world, and th this, I guess, is kind of my ultimate question, there was this rush to kind of just say, like, faster is better. Like, faster is just unequivocally better in all you know instances. We don't need to worry about it. Consumers are going to love this. No one can hurt themselves if they move faster. And I think the experience over the last five-plus years has been moving fast, particularly for these sort of P2P consumer use cases, is pretty dangerous. And... I don't know. I mean, I when I see like all of these financial institutions being on the hook for a lot more of this, do you anticipate changes rippling through to the customer experience in terms of like how uh, they're introduced this experience? I, I mean, it, that's already happened, at least at least anecdotally. I haven't done like a deep UX research on this, but I've noticed in I am a Chase customer, <laughs> long time. <laughs> um, uh, as well as TransferWise and in Venmo, I've noticed incremental UX additions that are, you know, functionally, intentionally adding friction, yeah. whether it's, you know, a big scary warning, like only send this to somebody that you know, this is the equivalent of handing somebody cash, right. whether it's, I want to say in Venmo, I saw like an incremental, like asking you to verify somebody's phone number. So if you're sending money to a like a Venmo tag that you've never sent money to before, being like, hey, can you confirm this is Camilla's phone number and like type it in? Right. So I've already, again, anecdotally noticed these sort of UX speed bumps to try to get people to, to sort of slow down and make sure, hey, like, are you sure you're really sending this to who you think you're sending it to? 
Yeah. And are you aware that, you know, once you press this button, you more than likely cannot cancel or get this money back. And that's right. not, you know, one of the big sort of features, particularly of Venmo and Cash App. I mean, I want to say at some point, like I accidentally sent money to somebody when I was trying to test something and, <laughs> and I work and I work in this business and have worked on, you know, UX adjacent things in, in financial flows. I mean, I may be revealing uh, my R age, but it's like maybe it shouldn't be <laughs> as easy to send money as it is to like order an Uber or something. Yeah, like, maybe you should have a couple more checks in there before like you've dispersed that and cannot cancel it or get it back. No, I totally agree. Well, like even Uber is a good example, right? Where it's like when it started off, it was like, hey, I'd like to order an Uber and you push the button. Again, we're revealing our age. We were there when Uber was invented. And, uh, you know, you push the button and like it would just come. But now you use Uber, you use Lyft, like there's a window for when you can cancel the ride before you're going to be charged. Like they've even introduced lots of layers of UX to the experience because, you know, there is just inherent uncertainty in human interactions. And so when you're building these into like software workflows, yeah, I do think you should be pretty sort of nuanced in your thinking about like, which windows are we giving consumers to cancel? What information are we providing them at what points in the process? And, you know, all these things always start out with like, let's give them the most frictionless version of this to show them what the future looks like. And then it's, let's layer a lot more friction in to make this more of a day-to-day usable experience. So it does feel like that nuance and sort of maturation is finally coming to this space. Again, thanks in large part to public pressure that's been heaped on these companies, I feel like. Absolutely. So it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I'm most curious to see whether or not this becomes codified into a specific rulemaking or some piece of legislation. There's no legislation happening this year, let's be serious. <laughs> but some piece codified into some piece of regulation, maybe. Yeah. Uh, as far as like actually, you know, defining requirements and specifically seeing kind of like an even playing field between Zelle and other services, pay, you know, PayPal, Venmo, Cash App, as far as what customers sort of rights and responsibilities are and where, yeah. you know, for industry, perhaps most importantly, where liability for those costs sits. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I've I've long been of the opinion that generally speaking, more liability for financial services companies in these things is good because it's like they'll look at these things and go, there's nothing we can do. We can't solve this problem. And then you shift the liability even a little bit. And they're like, suddenly we have all these ideas for how we can protect consumers and introduce more friction and, you know, stop these bad things from happening. So it's it's amazing what ingenuity gets unlocked as soon as liability gets moved. And so I do think in the case of Zelle specifically. They sort of saw that rulemaking somewhere on the distant horizon. They were like, eh, maybe let's try to get ahead of this, at least for certain types of scams. So we'll be interesting to see how it evolves. Jason, do you want to introduce our next story? Yeah, absolutely. So Revolut claims that it is profitable and growing quickly and that a banking license is, I'm going to add scare quotes around this, coming soon. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Bloomberg reports that Revolut's financials are averaging 125 million pounds in revenue per month with unnamed sources telling Bloomberg it is adding 300,000 customers per week and a total of almost 40 million customers globally. That same report put profit at about six million pounds, which is a bit over seven and a half million dollars 
which the reporting says is down from last year. But then I cross-checked this, and I always get a little bit confused with how Revolut reports out some of these metrics. Because Me FT, too. <laughs> yeah. I think I actually, I even wrote a post maybe on the 2021 results because I was so confused about, like, mm. one headline said, like, huge profit, one headline said giant loss. And <laughs> at, at, any, at any rate, this is following multiple delays in Revolut filing accounts, a weird fight with its auditor, BDO, and lengthy delays in Revolut receiving its UK banking license, which it says is imminent. Another fun Revolut tidbit that Alex sourced from Twitter, apparently Wise does not accept bank statements from Revolut as proof of address because they perceive Revolut's KYC as being weak or insufficient. You know, Alex, I'm always a little bit, well, I'm always a little bit skeptical, period. But particularly when <laughs> it comes to, <laughs> particularly when it comes to Revolut, I feel like I don't know if this is like a, a trial balloon strategy for press, for investors, for regulators. But the company has a history of floating things in the media, some of which never actually happen, some of which yeah. are kind of like a vaporware product. I mean, folks may may or may not remember in 2021 when Revolut said it w was planning on filing for a U.S. bank license in California. I was actually Googling this before we hopped on, which generated a great TechCrunch headline that said Revolut has applied for a U.S. banking license, which was just <laughs> never true because yeah. we're here now two or three years later. And Revolut never applied, never formally applied for a U.S. banking license. It had also announced at one point a, quote-unquote, currency corridor between Revolut U.S. and Revolut Mexico users to offer, you know, no hidden fee, real exchange rate transfers. The only problem, they announced that in 2021. The only problem is Revolut is not live in Mexico still here in 2024. Yeah. So, so I'm always perhaps even more so than other companies, skeptical when I see media reports, although I tend to trust Bloomberg and FT to do their homework. You know, what do you make of sort of, you know, Revolut's, you know, financials to the extent that, that you know, we know what they are, and, and particularly sort of this path to profitability of Revolut versus, you know, perhaps any of the other neobanks that we've talked about in the past? Yeah, I mean, I think that Revolut is such a hard one for me to to put my finger on because there are these, like, things that all seem true kind of roughly at the same time that don't really square with each other, right? So it's like, is Revolut a really slick, well-built, by many well-liked digital banking product? Yes, right? Does it have a lot of users, both in the UK and around the world? Yes. Does it ship new products and new features really fast and is very proud of that? Yes. And so like, when they report like we're growing quickly, customers are really happy, we're making more money, like the general context of that, when I think about it, because sometimes I'll get those reports, and I'll be like, there's no anecdotal information that would suggest that these things you're reporting are true. And in the case of Revolut, like I, there are things like it's a big, successful neobank. And so when they say things like, yeah, we're making a lot of money, we're growing really quickly, like I have no real reason to not believe them. But then at the same time, you know, 
the, a lot of the things you pointed out are also true, right? They'll be like, yeah, we're getting a banking charter any day now. And it's like, well, you said that two years ago and it's still not true. And, you know, we are like just a couple weeks behind in, you know, publishing our financials, which um, in certain European jurisdictions you're required to do, even if you're a private company. And then like, that just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And then like, oh, you know, we put out our accounts, but our auditor materially disagrees with parts of our accounting statement. Well, okay, that's weird. They're like, oh, but it's not a big deal. But we also did fire our accounting firm and now we're in this fight with them. Like, there'll be these things that happen where you're like, I don't understand what that means, but the fact that it's happening sort of makes me question everything that I thought I knew. I mean, this is a strange analogy, but it reminds me a little bit of the Schrodinger's cat thought experiment where it's like, you have this healthy, vibrant cat where you're like, oh, this cat's great. And you put it in a box and you're like, I have no reason to think that this cat's not going to be great. But there is also this vial of poison in the box. And it's possible that that vial of poison broke. And if it did, then the cat's like super not alive. And I'm just living in this like sort of constant state of quantum uncertainty. And Revolut to me is like the version of that in fintech where this big, interesting box, there was like this vibrant cat that's in the box. But I've also gotten sort of whispers that there might be like poison that's been released in the box. I just, I don't know what to make. What's in the box, Jason? At a fundamental level, it's always interesting to me that Revolut has taken such an incredibly different tact than its UK peers. So Starling, Monzo, and the rest of them, as far as, you know, very, very aggressive geographic expansion ridiculously aggressive geographic expansion, <laughs> yeah, as yeah, well yeah. as an aggressive product feature expansion. And, yep. and I guess the question I have, particularly on the geographic side, is, you know, are there really efficiencies to scale across multiple jurisdictions in this space? And I guess I'm not convinced that there are. I'm not convinced that they're not. But I mean, is we've it? seen, you know, other... And I mean, N26 has its own idiosyncratic problems, but some of them may be yes. similar. We've seen other neobanks, you know, try to expand aggressively into other geographies and have it become a real albatross. I mean, N26 was in the US, pulled out, had, I believe, a misadventure in Brazil, pulled out. Yep. And I just, I kind of wonder to what extent does, you know, what, why, excuse me, what Revolut built in the UK allow them to efficiently scale into other jurisdictions that have their own licensing requirements, their own regulatory requirements, you know, have to do, you know, different competitive landscape, have to do marketing to acquire users. You know, you could look at the lesson of traditional banks like Citi and HSBC and say, hey, you know, there's a reason why they're all shrinking their retail footprints around the world because, you know, it turns out, like, maybe there aren't necessarily great economies of scale in retail banking, you know, across different geographies. You can make a counter argument that, you know, Revolut's not stuck with branches, you know, it's tech forward, blah, blah, blah. Okay, Maybe so, say so see, I gotta AI say, man, times. I gotta <laughs> say, like, I would be so much more sympathetic to that argument if there wasn't a report that came out in the middle of last year. Do you remember this? That criminals stole $20 million from Revolut via a payment loophole in their advanced technology where, one of the regulatory differences in terms of how reimbursements are handled between the UK and the US allowed for fraudsters to steal $20 million from Revolut in the US before Revolut even noticed. In fact, the, according to the reporting, 
it wasn't Revolut that noticed. It was their U.S. banking partner that they which were doing the banking. Which is NCB. Yes, yes. Who, who which consent is, order, yeah. Right, right. It's like if NCB is catching uh, this problem, like because of this uh, flaw in your technology that should be able to expand across multiple geographies, like, whoops, we made a bit of a mistake there. So it kind of was all part and parcel of this, like, and you, you touched on this before with kind of their their press strategy. Like they seem to have this mentality of we just ship fast and we move fast, right? And We've seen this many, many times in fintech all over the place where like speed of shipping code is like the holy grail of what you want to be. But I do think there is this point that happens, particularly in financial services, where a culture of moving fast becomes incredibly dangerous relative to its advantages. And so like just because you ship code fast does not mean that you are managing compliance risk at the same speed. Just because you ship fast doesn't mean that you should be shooting your mouth off from a PR and a comms perspective even faster than you're shipping code and shipping new products and features. And it just seems like there's this like constant need to just accelerate and move faster and faster at Revolut that, to your point, for the last few years has been kind of counterproductive to what they're actually trying to accomplish, which is profitable, getting banking licenses, building sort of durable businesses in multiple markets. Like, at a certain point, your speed sort of turns on you. And I feel like that's kind of the story with Revolut the last couple of years. I don't disagree. I mean, I'll just deploy as many New York cliches as I possibly can. It's like, where there's smoke, there's usually fire, right? And like, yeah. there have been so many, you know, between the auditor filing accounts late, the US fraud story, really a really high rate of exec turnover, which, I mean, it's not good in any company, but particularly, right. you know, senior levels of a multi-jurisdiction financial services company, you probably don't want to see your C-suite turning over every, you know, 12 or 18 months. It feels like there's something that will happen at some point, but it's, I would not even hesitate, I guess, at this point. Yeah, it's well, it's hard, right? Like, you know, tis the time for predictions. And it's like, I would be really reluctant to offer a prediction about what's going to happen with Revolut in 2024. I honestly have no idea because like, I imagine they'll move aggressively and talk aggressively about how fast they're moving. I imagine that certain parties, both in government and elsewhere, may not trust everything they hear from Revolut. But beyond that, like, I have no idea what's going to happen. So for those of you who come to the FinTech Recap Podcast for certainty, I'm sorry, we can't offer much for you on Revolut. Jason, do you mind if we hop through a couple last stories kind of quickly? Let's do it. So the first one, I just want to get your reaction to this, is a, a little trend I've noticed, which is a lot of FinTech companies popping up focused on unlocking access to spending from tax-advantaged bank accounts. So the basic principle here seems to be that there is a lot of unspent money that sits in tax-advantaged accounts. And these could be 529 accounts for you know adult children who maybe had money contributed by family or friends for college savings. It could be adults with medical expenses. You know, a lot of us have in the US HSA or FSA accounts for healthcare expenses. It could be adults who are disabled who have 529 ABLE accounts that help uh, to defray the costs of medical expenses and caretaking expenses for disabled Americans. But there's all of these sort of different tax-advantaged accounts. And because there are restrictions on what qualified expenses are 
for these different accounts, they're kind of more difficult to manage than you might want. And as a default, a lot of these accounts end up with money in them that just doesn't get spent. Now, of course, the banks or the administrators of these accounts don't necessarily mind having sort of sticky deposits that just sit in them and never get spent. So there's not a lot of urgency by incumbent providers necessarily to facilitate greater spending. Hence, the entry of fintech companies into this category. So in the HSA, FSA kind of medical expenses world, there are companies like TrueMed or a company with a truly terrible name, Binky, who have started to focus on ways to unlock the spending within these health savings and uh, flexible savings accounts. Purple and TrueLink and some other companies are focused on doing the same thing for disabled accounts, for able accounts for disabled Americans and their caretakers. I can't name any specific companies in the fintech space that are focused on you know, 529 accounts for educational expenses, but I assume some folks are working on that as well. So it sort of feels like there's been this recognition that like, I mean, I guess fintech always finds sort of unspent money and tries to figure out ways to get it spent. Like that's something we're pretty good at in fintech. But I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of struggle with this category, Jason, because while there is some interesting innovation around how do we unlock qualified spending, how do we make it easier for consumers to manage? I also am not sure these problems are quite big enough to build a whole business around. What's your just sort of quick reaction to this as like a an emerging trend within fintech? I mean, this is not a fintech reaction, but you running through that list reminded me how truly insane American public policy is that it tries to use tax code, like it tries to use the tax incentives to fix all these other kinds of problems. But it's the only tool a, in our bag, Jason. It's yeah. the only thing we can do. It's, no, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's that, that's, a, that's an entirely different discussion. No, I mean, uh, listening to your summary and reading through this, my initial reaction was the classic fintech, you know, is this a company or is this a feature yeah. question? And I mean, my extremely uninformed, unresearched, like gut reaction was like, this feels like a feature. Yeah. Like, is this something that sits in, you know, as part of like your bank account? Is it something that sits as part of like payroll HR benefits portal, which it has been whatever, five or six years since I've had a HSA or FSA kind of thing. But as I recall, like that tended to be set up through your HR benefits area. Yep. So yeah, I mean, you know, are these problems painful enough that users, you know, and consumers want to sign up for yet another app on their phone that's a single point service provider? Maybe. I mean, for some people that the answer may be yes. Yep. Are, you know, is there a meaningful enough business model and revenue stream attached to solving these particular problems? And then is the TAM big enough to drive a venture scale business? I mean, frankly, it also kind of reminds me of like the niche neobank phenomenon. That's like, exactly oh, okay, what neobanks. I was thinking. Yeah. You know, neobank for GLBTQ, neobank for Asian Americans, neobank for... Mm. Definitely, I can understand. And yes, from my memory, particularly when these things were managed through like an ancient... ADP portal that like you forgot your <laughs> password to because you use it once a year and yeah. like you're trying to figure out how to change it. Definitely ripe for improvement on the UX. Is it a standalone business? Maybe, maybe not. Is it a standalone venture scale business? Probably not, right? Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I mean, I will say like using like TrueLink as an example, like 
they do a lot of stuff. And I think this particular area is just like one of many things that they do to serve their segment of the market, which is, you know, sort of consumers that require special care and their caretakers, essentially. And, uh, you know, even that business, I think there is some disagreement within the venture community about like even something that's as big a market as that with a multi-pronged product that solves a lot of different problems for that segment of the market, even is that a venture scale business. And some some VCs would say, yes, it absolutely is. Some others would disagree. So like the venture scale business, like benchmark to get to is just super, super hard, which might be more of a condemnation of like venture capital as an industry and sort of how things work. But I think that's a very, very fair critique on the like, is this a standalone business? The other thing I've noticed here is that a lot of these companies have very quickly pivoted away from trying to be their own standalone brand or app that you download. And have tried to do a lot more of this things through partnerships. And some of that's, hey, partner with the administrators of these accounts. Some of it is partner with, you know, the consumers sort of existing bank account providers. A lot of them are trying to go through partnerships with banks, particularly community banks. I think in the case of like the TrueMed and Binky ones that are trying to unlock like HSA and FSA spending, a lot of the innovation that they're working on is like, how do you prove at the point of sale when you're buying like health supplements online that those health supplements are a qualified medical expense and how can you like automate that process? So it's kind of like a, a bit of regulatory arbitrage in terms of like, how do you exploit the rules around qualified medical expenses to make that as seamless at the point of sale as possible. Like to me, that point of sale innovation is almost more something that Stripe might eventually want to build or acquire from someone who's built it. Like it seems more like a feature of payment processors and yeah, yeah, the merchant side of things. Okay. And so I feel like to your point, a lot of this thinking, it's not that it's not good thinking or that it's not solving a problem. But a lot of it may end up getting absorbed as features into different areas or getting bundled as a part of a larger suite of products for some of these specific niches if they're big enough. Fun fact about TrueLink, when I first moved to San Francisco to start at LendUp, they shared an office space with us because their really? co-founder CEO was the first, I think, like data scientist or credit risk modeler for, for LendUp. So good to see that they're still around. Yeah, no. Well, I will say, like, I'm a big fan of TrueLink. I, I like what all of these other companies are trying to do. Like, in general, if there's money just trapped in accounts, I do feel like that money should be freed. And I, I think that that is kind of a uh, a flaw of the U.S. financial system is a lot of just uh, sleepy money that ends up getting trapped and people sort of quietly benefiting from it being trapped. So unlock all these dollars. I'm all for it. But yep. I, I do share a lot of your concerns. Speaking of things that Concerns. are concerning. Yeah, uh, maybe you could spend a little time. I know you you maybe indulged a bit of a temptation over the holiday break to look into a fintech company. I don't know what's wrong with me that I was spending my holidays signing up for credit builder products and also looking <laughs> at FDIC disclosures. But yeah, I guess that just means I had a very slow holiday. Yeah, I did sign up for Alex's favorite credit building product, Tomo Boost. I think I did the middle tier, which ran me $49.99 per month. You're a, is that a VIP? I can't remember what they call it, but you're, yeah, yeah. like that's, you go into like Mars or yeah. whatever based on their graphics. Yeah. 
I did use one of my burner cards. So when it tries to debit next month because <laughs> I hear it's impossible to cancel, it will yeah. not be able to successfully debit. Yeah, I just, I don't even know where to start with this one. You've talked about it. I've talked about it. You went very deep on it. So many problems. I mean, anyone who really wants to see all the back and forth, there was a really fun Christmas-ish time conversation on Twitter about this. There was. But yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it show, show up on my credit report yet. Uh, it may or may not actually show up, so I don't know what's going to get furnished. But there were people chiming in, showing screen caps from, it looked like Credit Karma, where it was, it didn't even specify what the line was, yeah. right? So if you're paying for your fake line of 30000 and there's no line specified, what are you actually paying for? The yep. amount due is zero. I know that neither of us are actually credit, you know, data credit scientists, but the general consensus seems to be the data has no value or possibly a negative value, depending on how potential lender is is using it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it definitely feels like it's a UDAP. I guess we can't adjudicate issues of fact here, but definitely high risk for being deceptive or abusive. I think rogue CFPB on Twitter pointed out that knowingly reporting false data also would probably violate FICRA, which this, uh-huh. again, would appear to do. I mean, my my biggest question, you know, this is a company that I, I was not super familiar with their credit card offering, but seemed to generally be like successful-ish in the space. Yeah. Had, you know, top top tier investors like Morgan Stanley and MasterCard. What I really want to know is like, what drove the decision to pivot into this very sketchy, very problematic product? And and I imagine at some point we may find that answer. Yeah, no, I wish I had the answer now. I mean, I when I was writing my big piece on this product and sort of promising that I'd never write about credit building ever again because it's like the bane of my existence. But uh, <laughs> when I was digging into it, I interviewed the founder and CEO of Tomo and we had a very like candid conversation and it was very strange, honestly, because, um, you know, there wasn't really any signs that they like thought they were doing anything wrong. You know, obviously there's all kinds of things wrong with this product. I'm shocked that the credit bureaus are even sort of like toying with still allowing this data to be reported in whatever format it's being reported. I personally, and I think you and I are on the same page about this, think that the CFPB is going to crack down more broadly on credit building as a category, both from a UDAP perspective as well as from a, a FICRA perspective, since they are the regulating authority on the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But yeah, I just I don't think any of this is useful to consumers. I think it's highly deceptive, as you sort of hinted at before, the post sign up deluge of emails that you get from uh, Tomo is extreme, even within the realm of sort of aggressive growth fintech companies. If the card you use doesn't work the next month, like you're going to hear about it a lot from them. It is essentially impossible to cancel from what I've been able to glean from other folks who've tried it online. So yeah, I mean, the whole thing is really, really desperate in a way that seems very strange for a company that the founder and CEO told me were profitable. I don't believe that that's true, but um, like they seem to evince publicly no concerns about their runway or sort of imminently being out of business. But to me, this strikes me as the type of thing you do when you have no more ideas left and very little time. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I cannot imagine given the fact pattern, 
given the noise on places like Better Business Bureau and I was going to say Glassdoor, not Glassdoor, the the other oh, uh, yeah. review site. Yeah. You know, I can't, cannot imagine that there's not going to be some kind of they're action. They're really bad reviews, well, you know, too. If you go read those reviews, like yeah, it, they're no. epically bad. Whether it's CFPB, FTC, or like state, you know, state attorneys general or something. Yeah. And to your point, I, you know, the reason I was looking at this over the holidays was really just thinking about the wider credibility category. Yeah. And I do think it is, you know, problematic as far as what what gets messaged to consumers about, oh, just, you know, use this debit card and like you're, you know, magically fix your credit versus increasingly how I understand those data points to be used or not used in actual underwriting decisions. Yeah. And given just how prevalent that cat, you know, just how big, like every, I mean, every sort of neobank has some version of that product. Yep. And you have a bunch of standalone products, you know, different structures, different ways of doing it. But, you know, it, it definitely feels like ripe for a reckoning, just given the sheer size of the potential impact to consumers from it. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. And it's exploiting a very genuine, I think, need and problem that consumers have, which is like the credit system makes no sense. And how do I get started with credit if I've never had credit? So like when they say when these companies say like this is the number one thing customers are asking for, like I don't think that's untrue. It's just that when you're building a product in this space and I've written about this many, 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 many times and I apparently am destined to continue doing so, you know, you have to strike a balance between building something that's customer friendly, building something that works in a ubiquitous fashion for a large segment of your customers, and building a product that generates good, useful signal for lenders to use when they pull someone's credit from the credit bureaus. And it's really hard to do all three of those things. And so you have to sort of figure out which of those things you're willing to give in on. And so far in fintech, the thing that they've been giving in on and just not caring about is reporting useful signals to the bureaus. And that's that's just not something that's going to work because like, I can tell you for a fact that large, sophisticated consumer lenders like Capital One and JP Morgan Chase and Citi, they don't screw around with this stuff, right? Like they don't lend money to consumers just hoping that this new signal that showed up in the bureaus is going to be trustworthy. Like they don't mess around. They test it. They will up really quickly screen it out. And I know that that's happening. And not only are they screening it out, but in some cases, to your point, they're treated as a negative signal in their underwriting models. So what that means, practically speaking, for consumers is I signed up for this service to increase my odds of getting approved or getting approved for a good price. And actually what it's doing is decreasing my odds. And that to me is crystal clear UDAP. And uh, you know, I, I think that we will see some action taken on that at some point. So Jason, we need to move on before my head completely explodes. Yeah, yes. uh, I have one last segment before we get to Can't Let yeah. It Go, which we will of course do. But a new segment, a surprise segment, something we may just do every show for 2024 if things keep up the way they're going. I am calling this segment Tales from Bassland, because for those who read Jason's newsletter, which I assume is everyone listening, Jason is our embedded reporter in the war that is being fought in banking as a service. He's on the front lines. He's hearing about all of the latest stuff that's happening. And it seems like every week, there's some new little bit of drama. So Jason, you don't have to go super deep, but like, tell me what's the latest from Bassland? Yeah, so the sort of big dust up in the back half of December to briefly summarize. So Mercury, which is a sort of business banking startup, 
previously was a customer of Synapse with its customers on Evolve and yep. also partners, I believe, with Choice. In around October, news broke that Mercury was moving off of Synapse to go directly with Evolve. That was a big deal because Mercury, you know, by all signs and signals, was Synapse's largest customer. In early December, the 11th, Mercury filed an arbitration claim against Synapse. That is private. We don't know what's in the arbitration claim. Then Mercury, a couple of days later, filed a lawsuit. I am not a lawyer. This is not legal advice, but essentially seeking to freeze or preserve Synapse's assets such that if Mercury wins an arbitration, there will still be money there to collect, Earth. with the number mentioned in that highly redacted lawsuit being $30 million. Synapse's CEO, Sankit Pathak, fired back in a blog post promising to file a countersuit. Very quickly summarizing his points, you know, he seemed to be arguing that basically this was a dispute about the deposit rebate and whether or not the money going to Mercury would increase as the Fed funds rate went up and revenue share, whether it was determined based on gross or net interchange. We do not need to go into all of that. <laughs> I mean, my my bottom line summary is like nobody comes out of this looking good. Yeah, no, it's weird. And it seems like it just kind of keeps going back and forth, but definitely a good example of like the worst case in terms of what goes wrong. I mean, I've, I've just been fascinated to see like Synapse, Evolve, Mercury, like some of them are like teaming up with each other and trying to cut one of them out. You like, I mean, it's just like, I mean, literally like what happens when it's every man for himself and Bass seems like sort of like, this is like the worst case version of that story playing out in real time. It's Lord of the Flies on Bass Island. <laughs> awesome. Okay, well, thank you to our embedded reporter, Jason Mikula, for that report from Bass Island. Uh, Jason, uh, before we <laughs> end, uh, <laughs> let's do quickly uh, Can't Let It Go. Mine's a crypto one because, you know, I'm nothing if not consistent. Are you familiar with LinksDAO? I am. I'm forgetting his name because I'm jet lagged, but I follow him on Twitter. So Mike I, Dudas. I did I did see Links down. Yes. 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 Uh, golf course. Buying were they buying a golf course or something? They bought a golf course. They bought one. Yeah. So um oh, for those right. for cool. those who yeah, it's great. So for those who are not familiar, and Jason, you don't play golf, I'm guessing. You know, this is embarrassing because we spent a week over the holidays at my partner's mom's house, which is on a golf course. Uh -huh. But no, I do not golf. Okay. All right. Well, um, I golf terribly, so I, I should probably just never golf again. But um, for those golf enthusiasts out there, during sort of the height of crypto and NFTs or whatever, LinksDAO launched. It's a DAO, so a decentralized autonomous organization. And the principle was essentially, let's get a bunch of sort of wealthy crypto folks together who also happen to like golf. Let's create a NFT that everyone mints, and then we'll use the proceeds from that NFT managed through the DAO to create basically the first like kind of digitally native golf community or, you know, essentially country club. And as you might imagine happening in the sort of height of 2020 and 2021, like they raised a lot of money. They did, in fact, manage to actually buy a golf course, which should theoretically be opening at some point. I know nothing about the process of buying dilapidated golf courses and fixing them up, but they did acquire one, which is great. But the interesting thing to me was most recently, they sort of revamped their process for signing up new members such that you no longer have to 
mint an NFT or pay in crypto in order to be a member of LinksDAO. And in fact, it's now no longer called LinksDAO. They've changed their name and removed the term DAO entirely from it. And I don't know. I mean, I guess everything is just like the old version of what it was before, right? Like, we're a crypto country club, which is totally different than a country club, but actually it's not at all different from a country club. And, you know, we're a decentralized organization that's trying to do whatever. It's like all of these things, and I, I feel so sort of justified in my cynicism when I look at the aftermath of all of this, because like in 2020 and 2021, it was like, we're completely rethinking this thing that's existed forever. And it's not at all the bad things you think about this thing. It's a new good thing. And it turns out it's all just the same stuff. So I don't know, man, I'm just I'm tired when I see these things. I don't even really want to necessarily harp on it too much, but it just makes me tired. I mean, I'm impressed that they actually bought the golf course because <laughs> the, the, the Constitution thing did not go so well. No, no, it didn't. And honestly, the Constitution one, also the one, did you remember the one where they um, they bought one of the original like screenplay copies of the Dune screenplay? Do you remember that one? I did not catch that oh, one. Oh, that one was amazing too because they, the, they bought the original like script screenplay for a treatment for Dune that was done in like the 70s. And they somehow thought that in buying that, that gave them the right to the IP to make a Dune movie, not understanding anything about intellectual property law and uh, quickly had to sort of pivot out of that. So there have been a lot of like stupid examples of it. But yeah, seeing the sort of gently smoldering wreckage of those ambitions from 2021 has uh, been an experience, to put it lightly. Um, Jason, what's your can't let it go? Yes. So, you know, this is, well, last year and I guess still this year is the year of generative AI. It is. Uh, Bank, which is Netherlands-based neobank, which I actually use as my real bank, yeah. put, put out some statements bragging that they are the first AI-powered bank in Europe. And it has a generative AI assistant named Finn, which I will point out was also the name of Chase's failed like <laughs> digital-only <laughs> banking brand. But that, I assume, is a coincidence. Again, since I had time over the holidays, I was playing around. It's basically like a prompt sure. in, you know, in the top of your banking app. Yeah. And I tried both very specific things. You know, how much did I spend at this store last year? Sure. How much did I spend on groceries last year, as well as more general things? And every single answer was factually incorrect. <laughs> And I'm talking basic stuff like transaction categorization. How right. much did I spend on groceries last year? Okay, there's there's like three grocery stores in the Netherlands. Right. So every single prompt I gave, the response was factually wrong by like orders of magnitude. <laughs> um, which, I mean, I shouldn't sound like too gleeful. Like I also spent my holiday reading a book about AI from the founder of DeepMind. Oh, sure. And I'm slightly terrified, but also like I'm convinced that, you know, this is going to be a generational change technology the way the internet was or desktop computer. Like I am, you know, I believe that. That said, the need to rush out half-baked features and then just slap the label beta on it and think it's going to make it okay. I just, I find like, the former sort of product manager side of my brain is like, you probably shouldn't just like release something that's like really broken and then feel like okay about it because it has beta on it. Yeah. And then put out a press release. Well, you know, not to be so. uh, a decelerationist, whatever that might mean, but like it, it might be nice with AI as we sort of rush into this new world. Like maybe we should go 
slower when releasing these features. Like maybe our default should be like, let's make sure it works really well. Because to your point, like I agree, it's a very powerful new sort of vector of technology that I think will have massive changes uh, across a whole bunch of different industries, including financial services. But like, yeah, that that sort of consequential outcome combined with the hype-fueled need to be the first to put out this press release or to release this feature. Like, those two things, I'm not in love with the marrying of both of those. Like, let's let's treat this technology as it is, which is what like What could very go horrible. wrong, Alex? What I, could go wrong? I mean, Hollywood, wrong? Hollywood has been painting the picture of exactly what could go wrong. I don't think that's probably an accurate depiction, but does it take too much to imagine, like, Maybe this isn't like the best thing to do. So, well, I appreciate your update on uh, what is it? Europe's first AI powered bank. That's good to know that, you know, I guess what tellers and European banks maybe still have a job for at least a little while longer. Uh, a little while. Uh, I guess. Uh, should we call it a day there, Alex? We should. We should. We'll be back at it next month. And uh, Jason, really looking forward to breaking down uh, what I'm sure will be a very exciting year in fintech in 2024. So until next time. Can't wait. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fintech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love Fintech Takes, please tell a friend.